Good morning. My name is Taylor. I'm the high school ministry director, and it's my privilege to open God's Word with you this morning. Before we do that, though, let's go to God together in prayer. Father, we give you this time, we give you our hearts and our minds, and we ask that you would enlighten our minds, open our hearts to see your beauty and glory and to be changed by it. We pray this through Jesus, amen. Ira Glass is the creator and host of the radio program, This American Life, and he recounted a story of a time that he was attending a synagogue service after being away from the synagogue for many years. He was raised in an observant Jewish home, but as an adult had left religious belief uh, far behind. So he describes sitting in this service, listening to the prayers and the chants in Hebrew, and he started to read the English translations of some of the prayers that were being said and sung. And he was startled by just how many of them were about praising God. This is what he said. It really hit me sitting there. What does God get out of that? Why does he want us sitting down and telling him how great he is for 45 minutes a day? referring to the daily synagogue service. Ira goes on, Is he that needy? If some parent demanded that of their kids, okay, I want you to praise me for 45 minutes a day, every single day of your life, we would know they were nuts. (laughs) What does God care if we love him? So why do we praise God? Why does God command us to praise Him. It can seem almost vain or petty for God to require that of us. And praise can feel out of place when our hearts are burdened with sorrow, when the world is filled with darkness. Why do we praise God? What's fascinating about the Psalms is that for all the laments and complaints and all the anguished cries to God, the book of Psalms ends with an explosion of praise. So, turn with me to one of these closing praise-filled Psalms, Psalm 147, Psalm 100. 47. We're going to let this psalm instruct and perhaps persuade us as to why we should praise God. This is God's word. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. 
He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. Praising God is our duty and our delight because God powerfully rules over creation and He faithfully takes care of His people. That's the the message of Psalm 147. Praising God is our duty and our delight because God powerfully rules over creation and faithfully takes care of us, his people. This psalm is organized around three commands to praise. In verse 1, verse 7, and verse 12. After each of these commands to praise, the psalmist gives us reasons why we should praise God. So we, we have in Psalm 147 these three cycles of praise. And I'd like to walk through each of these three movements, these three cycles of praise to see how it is that praising God is both duty and delight. So let's look at the first cycle, verses 1 through 6. In this section, the psalm calls us to praise God because He rules the stars And restores his people. Praise God because he rules the stars and restores his people. Look at verse 1. Here's the command Praise the Lord. What's interesting is that what comes next in verse 1 is different from the other two commands to praise. Verse 1 pauses to briefly 
give an account of the appropriateness of praise itself. Look at the rest of verse 1. Praise the Lord. Why? For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant. And a song of praise is fitting. So, so follow what this is saying. Praising God is good, pleasant, and fitting. So God does not call us to praise him because he's needy or vain. Praising, we, we praise God. God calls us to praise him because he is objectively the most praiseworthy entity in the universe. Not to praise God is to do real moral evil. Not to praise God is likewise to deprive yourself of true joy. This is what C.S. Lewis said, God is that object to admire which is simply to be awake, to have entered the real world. Praising God is simply a joyful alignment with reality. Uh, Those of you who are basketball fans and over the age of 30 can probably tell me where you were when Reggie Miller scored eight points in nine seconds. It was 1995, playoff series against the New York Knicks, and it looked like the game was over. Little under 19 seconds left, Pacers down by six points, and Reggie Miller took over. Now, maybe some of you can tell me where you were because you turned the TV off in despair, in disgust. And so that memory for you is the story of how you missed perhaps the greatest event in Pacers history. You don't have to raise your hand or admit to that here. (laughs) But here's the thing. For that poor Pacers fan who missed Reggie Miller's iconic achievement, that doesn't diminish in any way the achievement itself. All it does is diminish that person's enjoyment of the achievement. That's why when something incredible happens, the next day people often ask each other, did you see that? The question is, did you get to experience that incredible Thing that happened. And in, in a similar way, the call to praise God is an invitation to experience the joy of who God is, the reality of God. And it's the reality of who God is that now occupies the rest of Psalm 147. Look at verse 2. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God restores his people. Jerusalem, the great capital city of the promised land, the the great city of David and his dynasty, God does not forsake his people. He doesn't let them 
languish forever in exile. He brings them back. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. God is a God of kind restoration and faithful compassion. But notice the shift now in verse 4. The psalmist moves from describing God's dealings with his people to describing God's work in creation, in relating to the world, the physical world. Look at verse 4. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. So the stars, numberless and distant to us, God has a name for everyone. Each one has its place in God's ledger. I mean, you think about what it cost us in time, money, and effort to get a handful of human beings to our own little moon. And God's like, I know every star. Every star is intimately known by God. Things that are totally beyond us, God has mastery over. But look at verse 6. Verse 6 brings it right back to God's interactions with His people. Verse 6, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. So God takes this infinite star-counting power and uses it to lift up those who humbly entrust themselves to Him. God restores His people and rules the stars. And here's the thing. This is true of God on good days and bad days. To use the the words of verse 3, this is true of God even when we are brokenhearted and wounded. And the fact is, many times when we're brokenhearted and wounded, we don't feel like praising God. But this first section, verses 1 through 6, is reminding us that even when we're in the midst of our woundedness and our brokenheartedness, it is still true of God that He's the one who heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. The the brokenhearted can look up into the night sky and remember that the God who keeps the stars in order is still in charge. So when we are in the midst of sorrow, we need the gift of lament. We've looked at a, a psalm of lament earlier in this series Lament is is powerful. But Psalm 147 would say that in our sorrow we also need praise. Because praise too can help us make it through our sorrow. Because it's, it's when everything falls apart that you have to remember what is the ground you stand on. What can you actually count on? And praise is one way that we anchor ourselves once again in the God who is bigger than the mess we're in. 
So praise God because he rules the stars and restores his people. That's the first cycle of praise. Let's look now at the second one, verses 7 to 11, where we see this. Praise God because he feeds the earth and supplies strength to his people. Praise God because he feeds the earth and supplies strength to his people. Notice once again, verse 7, this call to praise. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. And why? Verse 8, once again, looks out at the the natural world. Praise God because, verse 8 says, he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. So in the natural processes that sustain plant and animal life, God is at work to take care of his creation. God feeds the earth. God is keeping everything alive out of his abundant resources. Now, many people today would say that it's unbearably primitive to attribute God's agency to the processes of nature. Many people today would say the more science explains how nature works, the less we need God as an explanation. The problem with that, though, is that it assumes a kind of zero-sum approach to causation that's totally unwarranted. It, it would be like a child figuring out that a light switch turns on the lights and concluding there must not be anything else involved in turning lights on because there's nothing else that I can see but the light switch and the lights. I, I think about an example. Just because we understand the mechanics of photosynthesis, that doesn't actually do anything to rule out the possibility that a living God is at work in, through, and behind the process of photosynthesis. In fact, the very complexity and predictability of the process and the fact that our minds have been able to discover it are powerful evidences of the reality and the grandeur of God. As Ross Douthat recently wrote in a column in the New York Times, the God hypothesis is constantly vindicated by the comprehensibility of the universe. It's also vindicated by the capacity of our reason to unlock its many secrets. He says, indeed, there's a quietly theistic assumption to the whole scientific project. Look, considering nature cannot save you. We need the Bible. We need God's written word to do that. But considering nature can move you to praise. So let's work on 
having our eyes open to the praise-inducing wonders that are all around us. May we be the kind of people who can look at a cornfield, a butterfly, a tree, and say without embarrassment, look at what God has done. God feeds the earth, verses 8 and 9. Then in verse 10, that, that idea of sufficiency is carried over once again into God's dealings with his people. Look at verse 10. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So God is not impressed by all the strength that we can muster or master. He's not impressed because there's nothing we can supply him with that he was previously lacking. It cannot be done. So the question is, in the, in the framework of verses 10 and 11, well, what might delight a God who needs nothing from us? And the answer of verse 11 is that our fear of him and our putting our hope in him delights him. That, that means when we are in awe of him and when we rest our confidence in him, it pleases God. This is the Old Testament way of talking about faith, of finding God so reliable that you trust him with your whole self and your whole life. God delights to have his sufficiency recognized and relied upon. So the idea here is that we don't need to bring any of the strength to God. God supplies all of it. So the the message of this middle section of Psalm 147 is praise God because he feeds the earth and he supplies strength to his people. He feeds the earth and supplies strength to his people. Let's look now at the third cycle of praise, starting in verse 12. In this final section, we see the call to praise God because he commands the weather and gives good things to his people. Praise God because he commands the weather and gives good things to his people. Look at verse 12 with me. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is back in the picture from verse 2. Praise your God, O Zion. Why? Why should the people of God praise him? Verse 13 says, because he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. God gives good things to his covenant people. He he surrounds them with peace and security, and he fills them with blessings. And then once again, you're seeing the pattern, I hope, we move back to the created world, from God's people to God's creation. Look at verse 15. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. 
He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. So the very weather conditions that we have zero control over, God orders about with his words. He sends the icy cold of winter, and then at his command, he melts it. And the snow turns to flowing waters. That is the authority with which God's word is invested. And that leads the psalmist to reflect on one more good thing that God has given to his people, which is, look at verse 19, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. So, in, in verses 15 through 18, we see God's providential word ruling creation. And then starting in verse 19, 19 and 20, we see God's spoken and written word blessing his people. And you see this sense of, of wonder in verse 20. Like, how can it be that this great God has spoken to us? The God who sends blizzards and thunderstorms with his words has spoken to his people in such a way that he can be understood. And not just understood, but known. So God's written word carries all the authority of his providential word, but it also carries an additional element, which is his word is covenantal. It is relationship creating. When God speaks to us, he calls us near to him. He tells us how to find him. And so there is this added wonder to God's word that not only is it authoritative and powerful, it beckons little creatures like us to come near and know him. So we praise God because he rules the stars and restores his people. We praise God because he feeds the earth and supplies strength to his people. We praise God because he commands the weather and gives good things to his people. So this three-part hymn of praise is showing us that praising God is a duty and a delight. And I think one of the reasons why that can be so hard for us is that we live in a jaded and cynical age. We have been disappointed and let down so many times that at this point we're just kind of bracing ourselves for the next disappointment. Like no scandal is surprising anymore. No hero or accepted narrative is above reevaluation. The author uh, John Green once said in an interview that if you had asked him when he was a teenager to say 10 things about himself, he would have told you 10 things that he hated. This is what he said. I would have told you about what I was opposed to. I would have told you about what I thought was stupid and embarrassing and ridiculous about the human 
experience. You see, in a a jaded, cynical world, earnest praise is hard to come by. In a cynical, jaded age, it can seem naive to give expression to sincere, earnest, non-ironic praise. Not just naive, it can seem cheesy, even risky. But listen to what John Green goes on to say. He says, I think I got fed up with it. I got fed up with irony. I got fed up with sarcasm. I got fed up with this urge to create distance between myself and emotion. I think one of the things that Psalm 147 is doing, one of the things God is doing through Psalm 147 is He's calling us to an earnest joy in the one person who will not disappoint us, which is Him. He's inviting us to leave behind the cynicism and the jaded, emotionally distant way of operating in the world and to actually give ourselves to praise. And this pattern that we've seen of God ruling over creation and taking care of his people, what that is doing in Psalm 147, by weaving these things together again and again and again, the psalmist is showing us this incredible convergence of God's greatness and God's nearness. God is great. He rules over creation, but God is also near. He takes care of his people. And the the whole thrust of this psalm is a God like that must be praised. A God like that is worthy of our praise. So it seems staggering that this kind of greatness and this kind of nearness could coexist in the same God. But they do. And this coexistence, this convergence of greatness and nearness, it reaches its pinnacle in Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, the eternal sovereign Son of God came so near as to become one of us. Jesus, though he was the king of all kings, submitted himself to the horrors of the cross to bring us near. King Jesus, in his mighty resurrection conquest of death, in the resurrection, he shares that with his people, with all who will trust in him. And even now, even in his ascended heavenly splendor reigning at the Father's right hand, Jesus is still gentle and lowly, offering rest to anyone who comes to him. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. Such a one is worthy of our praise. To praise someone like that is a duty, but it is also a delight. So in light of that, let's fill our lives with praise. Our lives are hard, they're short, they're messy, 
But even so, there's no better way to live than to fill our minds and our prayers and our families and our houses and our small groups and our church to fill those things with praise. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your greatness and we rejoice in your nearness. Your greatness makes your nearness all the more incredible and your nearness makes your greatness sweet to ponder and to praise. Would you wake up our sleepy hearts to the dimensions of your glory that we are often blind or numb to help us be honored in our praise. We confess that even when our praise is imperfect, as it always is, you are utterly worthy to receive it. We pray this through Jesus, the Lion and the Lamb, our King and our Savior. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. It was wonderful to worship and be with you. This is the end of our gathering, but as always, you are encouraged to stick around as long as you can, grab a donut, make a new friend. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you. And now let's go from this place with a benediction. May the God of all power and might and glory bless you this week with his nearness in Christ by the Spirit. Go in peace.